Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, Simon here. Welcome to the show that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. I want to start by saying thanks for all your messages after last week's episode with a special nod to the likes of Millie, Vicky, Caitlin, Franz, Andrew and Neil. I also appreciate all the feedback that you've sent about the decision to change the name of this podcast to Life Lessons from Sports and Beyond. As Josiane messaged me, it feels like the right thing, but as with a new haircut, it might just take a bit of time growing into. Wise words indeed. I will be releasing the new artwork this week, starting on social media with a view to a more official handover in time for next week's episode. But this week's guest is Ed Jackson, who suffered a devastating accident after diving into a shallow swimming pool and breaking his neck. He made a miraculous recovery, despite being told he would never walk again. Now, Ed first appeared on the show two years ago, but this episode is very different. Ed has a new book out, it's called Lucky, and we really go deep exploring what he's learned since his accident in 2017. The theme of this episode is around the healing power of hard conversations, which is something Ed and his wife, Lois, understand clearly. We also talk about how self-sacrificing and people-pleasing can actually be selfish, while looking after yourself can be selfless. And we discuss the importance of letting life happen and not being overly fixated on outcomes. It was really great chatting to Ed, and if you could share this episode with anyone who might benefit from hearing it, we would both be incredibly grateful. So I bring you Ed Jackson. Ed Jackson, how's it going, you jammy swine? 
Hi, Simon. That's a lovely thing for you to call me. I'm very well. I'm very well and all the better for seeing your face. Lovely to see you too. Here you are. Author, TV presenter, charity fundraiser, social media influencer sensation. Do you ever ask yourself where <laughs> did it all go wrong? It's weird when you read it back and I'm definitely not a social media influencer. Yes, you are. And it, and <laughs> well, only you. I influence you. You, you influence, influence me. me a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's bizarre, mate. It's just, I, I, if someone had said any of those things to me five years ago, I would have laughed at them. Hmm. It's mad, isn't it? Imagine a parallel universe where you're sat there doing commercial property, <laughs> being able to bench press a lot more than you probably can now, I would imagine. If that was a reality, what does the idea of that make you feel? Um, I haven't really contemplated that before, but I'm very happy with all the stuff I'm doing and, and where it's going. And, and I think that's the one thing about, even if there are parallel universes or if the, this, everyone puts so much sort of weight on the decisions they have to make and whether it's the right or wrong decision, but you never know what the other decision would have been. So it, it's only whatever it is in your head. So you make decisions and you make changes and things happen and there's no point going, oh, well, what if that was a different way? I could probably see where my life was going. I had it a bit mapped out um, to a certain extent. Now I very much don't have a clue where it's going. It's shooting off in all weird directions. But I'm <laughs> I'm happy with that. You know, I've learned to embrace that. That that used to terrify me. Now, now it's yeah, kind of exciting, I suppose. But you were training or had an eye on commercial property, didn't you? Yeah, I actually I actually even went into the city and did some work experience at um Knight Frank in sort of the investment side of commercial property. I did a master's in real estate finance and for no other reason than I did my undergrad when I was playing rugby. I kind of put it off to 25. And then I, people started at my age, started having to retire. And I thought, okay, I better do something. So I did an undergrad in leadership and management. And I actually, I reluctantly did it, but I actually found it really helped my sport. Um, it gave me a different distraction and focus away from rugby you know, the highs weren't as high and the lows weren't as low because you could go and switch your mind onto something else. So when that kept, when I came to the end of that, I thought, right, I want to carry on studying. So I spoke to all my mates who were working in different careers. By that point, they were sort of moving on to the next stage in their careers. And basically the ones working in uh, real estate or commercial property were on the golf course the most. So that was the only, the only reason I decided to do a master's in, in real estate. But then I did actually go and go and do it for a while um, in Baker Street after my accident, but two years after my accident. Um, and I, you know, I did not enjoy it. I, I actually, I actually did quite enjoy it. Um, and I think if I want, if I was going to go into the city, that might be what I, what I would do. But it also made me realize that, um, you know, life's too short to not have a go at the things you're passionate about. And by that point, things had started bubbling away in different areas that, um, that I was keen to pursue. So sort of stepped away and, chase my dreams if you like and I'm still doing that so could you imagine yourself still going and doing that or are you so compelled to follow your intuition could you ever imagine doing a job like that now um not anymore no uh, I think the what the what I've got back in terms of you know purpose and fulfillment from the different avenues I've gone down um, and this isn't anything against, you know, working in, in industry like that. You know, it's there's it's all necessary. And, you know, you can live a fulfilling life whilst having a job like that, as long as you've got focuses outside of your outside of work in certain areas. And 
you know, you're acting respectfully and honestly and, and you're helping others along the way. But I've got different things going on now, especially with the charity that I would probably now where I've got into my head, rather go and even if it all fell apart in the other areas, go and move and work for a charity somewhere just because of the realizations that I've made um, along mm. the way over the last sort of four and a half years. Uh, just to slightly backtrack and actually give away, I think, the last line of your book, or certainly one of the last lines of your book, which is just along the lines of, if you could change what happened, you wouldn't. And as you said, you know, things happen, there's no point getting swept up in or overanalyzing decisions or, or things that happened. And I actually posted something, I'm trying to be a social media influencer myself, failing miserably compared to you currently. Yeah, you're doing but... a great job. <laughs> I'll get there. Maybe just a few more budgie smuggler shots or something. <laughs> you're gonna have to. You have to go a little bit more lowbrow if you want more followers, mate. <laughs> okay, All right. I hadn't considered that. I'll give it a whirl. But yeah, and I put a post up though about the amount of people who something quote unquote bad happens to, but it ends up being a blessing or something like that. And there's the Alan Watts parable of the Chinese farmer, which I won't get into now, but basically the long and short of it is, I'm sure you know it, you will have read this over the last couple of years, no doubt about that, of not labeling things as bad or good too quickly. I mean, and you are just the living embodiment of that. Yeah, I think it's really important. Like life is, perception is reality, right? You know, that's another one that it's the same thing. It's how you view things. It's, it, that's, that's how they are. You know, if you see it as a bad thing, it's a bad thing. If you see it as a good thing, it's a good thing. And actually, obviously, some, some some things are more inherently unfortunate than others, or they might seem like it on the surface. But you have the power to then decide how much you're going to let that affect you and also what you're going to do with it. And I think for me, initially, that was, I, I struggled with that. You know, I was probably in the victim mentality, uh, as most people are after something like that happens, you know, it's well, after they go through a life changing injury or something they feel is not fair. Um, but I, you know, quite quickly realized that that was just damaging me. And I had to decide to look at it in a different way. And when I started seeing some good coming from my situation, that was then became addictive. And I said to myself, you know, if enough good can come from this situation, then it's no longer a bad situation. And my perspective on my whole situation, my injury, my accident, what's happened since has completely changed. You know, I, I wouldn't go back and change it because of everything that's transpired since. However, if I could go back and, you know, have the changes that have happened without the spinal cord injury bits, I definitely would. It's not easy having a spinal cord injury. It still isn't easy for me. There's lots of lots of issues having to face and uh, on a day to day basis. But if it comes as a bundle, you know, if it's if it's all in, then then I would I wouldn't change my life at all. And what's the point? Like you said before, you know, you don't know what the other option would have been. The other option, if it might hadn't dived in the pool. I might have ended up, I don't know, dying in a car crash a, a week later, or I could have ended up, you know, doing doing exactly what I'm doing now, unlikely. But you can only be happy with the path you're on. And life happens to us, you know, not for us, you know, and it's just choosing to accept that. I know you talk about acceptance a lot. I think it's a really important, I think it's a really important thing and, and understanding that most of the things are, are out of our control. So there's no point beating ourselves up about it. Absolutely. Actually, I'm just going to quote you a guy I mentioned to you before. So Eckhart Tolle, I stumbled across one of his recent talks and he's talking about a phenomenon that he sees unfolding, which is the awakening of individuals around the world. And he says, whatever happens in our lives, accept that it's exactly what we need for our spiritual growth. And I think that as an attitude is pretty meant. Yeah, it's the, it's the key. It's the secret. 
it's the secret. It is, isn't it? I know. And it's it, taken my. It took me a while to get my head around it. And I think actually, I probably already got my head around it in a in a post traumatic growth sense. You know, you hear about this happening to a lot of people, and I think that's a mental process that a lot of human break humans go through as a as a way of dealing with trauma but then understanding it in a philosophical sense a spiritual sense psychological sense has been a lot longer journey and I'm still trying to work it out to understand it and you've helped help me along in that process somewhat but it's really powerful um, a really powerful tool to have but also to work on and to un- to start to understand the sort of theories behind it I was um, a bit of a victim myself and I didn't break my neck so I just was a bit moany about family stuff and insecurities and definitely had that inner why me going on for a period for sure and uh, and I think it's a very common thing um but yeah getting away from that and also sort of stop feeling that life's got it in for you because I think actually when you feel like that sometimes life can have it in for you a little bit yeah but then also getting out of the driver's seat a little bit as in it's not you completely in charge of the course it's like the course of your life i mean it's like let go oh my god the car's still driving get in the back seat rather than the front a bit more does that make sense yeah definitely um i think the first time i realized that probably to a certain extent was i blamed myself a lot for my situation and the situation i put others in after my accident and when i went then went to the spinal unit I realized I looked at everyone else in there and I realized that actually there was just a complete cross-section of society and it was no one's fault they were in there. There were good people in there. Bad things happened to good people. Good things happened to bad people. And actually what all that had happened is life had happened to all of us. So there was no point beating ourselves up for why we were in that situation. We just had to play the cards we've been dealt. And as soon as I realized that, I start feel it, felt, stopped feeling so hard done by and I could be in a more positive mindset. But then things started unfolding in a positive way, you know, by, mm. by ha- making that realization. Yeah. You know, they've, they've now proved that, you know, your mindset can actually affect your biology. It's not just a spiritual thing anymore. Mm. There's chemical reactions happening and there's science coming behind it. There's, you know, the, the woo woo notion is moving further and further away from spir- you know, spirituality. And, and, and I felt that link in, in, in hospital, that removal of blame, that acceptance of my situation actually turned into physical results. Mm. Totally. I had, uh, just quickly, a vision. I wanted to work at Wimbledon and I eventually got to do it on TV. And that was my goal. But the attitude I had to get there was one of kind of burn the boats, if you know what I mean by that. You know, that whole kind of, I'm going to go onto this island and I'm going to make, it's either going to make a success of it or not. And how I'm going to do that is by burning the boats so I can't get off the island. That's the, the metaphor analogy or whatever it is. But the weird thing was, it was the burn the boat attitude that ended up having the effect, not the destination. So actually, even though I still do TV at Wimbledon, the, the direction I've gone on has been on a quite a one I wasn't expecting. Same thing happened f- to my wife. She um, She's written a book and I was just like, just send it out, get it out, get it out. And then weirdly, an opportunity arose in a way that she could never have expected. But it was all by pushing it in the right direction and then serendipitous stuff happens. I mean, for you, prime example. I mean, sure, you've got the chocolate box good looks. You're a, a prime <laughs> candidate for television, right? But that was never part of your plan, was it? But someone rang you and was like, Ed, TV, thoughts. 
Yeah, exactly. And it was bizarre. I thought it was one of my mates. I genuinely thought when I got the phone call that it was, I was like, who is this? Come on. And like, I didn't believe that it was an executive producer and they actually <laughs> did want me to go on a new new crew they're putting together for Channel 4 Rugby. And that opportunity came about because, weirdly, if you rewind it and look at where opportunities come from, they're normally got nothing to do with, mm. with you know, what life throws your way. And I think that had come because I'd started speaking in hospitals about my accident. And no, actually, if you wind it back, it'd come from, you know, me deciding to blog about my day in hospital, keep a diary in the evening to help me go to sleep, keep a journal. That had then lent me speaking about it publicly. They'd come and watch the talks, ex-rugby player, and then the, that door opened. And I think we spend a lot of time in our lives, you know, with those long-term goals and really focused on destinations and mm. beating ourselves up when we don't get there and, and or being frustrated that it's taking longer than you thought. When actually, if you just fall back on the journey and, oh, of course, stick to your values, you know, whether it be you know, work ethic or honesty or whatever that might be, and let life happen. Mm. Um, it's good to have goals and, and dream dreams and aspirations, but don't be glued to them because you'll miss the best opportunities. They'll just pass you straight by. And when you do that and actually take the pressure off those goals and destinations, you start progress. I found that I've actually started progressing way faster. And I think yeah. it's because partly because I'm probably just a bit of a, you know, I'm, you know, it, you know me better. I'm not the, I'm not, you know, I'm not the greatest person in the world to be around. You know, this is a big facade, you know, big front of me being this positive <laughs> bloke. But I'd like to think that I am quite nice to be around. And I'm probably I'm probably nicer to be around and more relaxed and giving off a more positive energy now that I'm not as directly driven in certain directions. And actually, I'm more open to everyone and everything. I love that quote. So I just want to repeat it. Let life happen, which basically means don't over control things. And... I remember I always felt guilty for not having a five-year plan. And I, and now it's like, sod that. It's, you know, I would say, if you've got one, chuck it out the window. There's that old quote, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. For me, it's just now, like you say, follow your values, but as well, follow your intuition and kind of just see what's out there waiting for you. Because then, And then often that's where the exciting, cool stuff is, you know? Yeah, definitely. And appreciate everything. Appreciate everything that happens, even when it seems even when it seems mm. shit, you know, because actually that will be closing off one door, but another one will open up. And if you can stay appreciative, you'll stay in a good place. You won't beat yourself down. You won't close down. Keep communicating, keep working on relationships and more stuff just happens. And that actually starts with just appreciating where you are right now. You know, a lot of people yeah. find themselves in a in a hole, in a rut, and they're like, if I can only just do this, I'll be in a good place, or I can do that, if I can get to this promotion, or get to this salary, I'll be yeah, fine, yeah. and then I'll be a good person to be around. No, have a look at, you've got family around you, you've got food on the table, you're breathing, that's a good start in itself, you know, we're all just <laughs> so lucky to be here, and be, and actually that helped in my process, I know a lot of people who can't breathe for themselves, you know, permanent tracheotomies, and it's good to ruminate on things like that, and have some perspective in your life, and set that bar a lot lower to start with because then you'll be in a better place mentally and things will start to move forward quicker and i know that perspective really helped you and i want to talk to you about that because you touch on it in the book and we'll we'll launch into that as well as a quick recap of your story in a second but one last question i want to ask you about let's say the parallel universe that we spoke about how do you think your relationship with lois would be different if things hadn't happened, you still would have got married. You still would have carried on, but you were like that. You've described yourself in your book as a ha the happy go lucky couple. Wouldn't talk about feelings. It was, 
you know, you're both very sort of bubbly and outgoing naturally, all that kind of stuff, right? How, and I'm going to come back to Lois because that was my favorite bit of the book, but how would your relationship be different in that parallel universe? That's a very left field and interesting question, Simon. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. We were very happy before. You know, we were very happy before. And what's happened to our relationship since and the, the trauma that we've gone through, not just me, but everyone that cares for you, the stress our relationship has been under at certain points has, of course, now left us in a place where we are far more resilient as a couple. You know, I know that there's a, if we, what we've got through, I'd be very surprised if there's anything that could tear us apart. If this hadn't happened, I still think we'd be very happy. I still think, you know, we, it's easy to look back and go, now we're stronger than we would have been. And we probably are stronger than we would have been. Are we any happier than we would have been? I'm not sure. You know, we, we, we've always been pretty happy in the first place. Again, I, I, I really, I don't know if this is like a bit of a defense mechanism for me from the, the whole reframing, but not willing to think back. But I also, I don't see any point in thinking about the what ifs. Because actually, if I, I learned that pretty early on, if I was thinking, well, what if I didn't dive in the pool? Or what if, you know, I'd done this slightly differently? Or what if I'd done that slightly differently? And I'd stand up, I'd end up lying on my back staring at the ceiling all day, just thinking about what ifs, but not actually doing what I could do every day. So I've never, to get better. So I've not, I've never actually thought about the, the situation me and Lois might be in if it, if it was different, if I'm honest with you. Well, that's no use to me, Ed, in an interview situation yeah, sorry, like this. Mate. So, so uh, okay, so you, of course, the happiness, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think your relationship's deeper? Definitely deeper. One thing that actually that wouldn't have happened, I don't think, is Lois wouldn't have become a life coach and taken a big interest in these areas that I'm interested in, you know, in psychology and philosophy. I now sit down and have in-depth conversations with Lois where she enlightens, she enlightens me and we teach each other things. And, and also we can, if you find something interesting, you've got someone to there to, to exercise that with, you know, to, to have those conversations and that wouldn't have happened um, before. Having said that, that wouldn't have happened to me either. So these interests have probably come since my accident as well. She was a professional netball player. You know, she was working in sport. I was working rugby. I think our conversations would probably have been a lot more surface, continue to be a lot more surface level. But yeah. equally as engaging and, and and entertaining for ourselves because we didn't know any different. Yeah, it's interesting. It's the the difference between what I would consider to be the perceived view of relationships, which is you meet someone, you get on famously, to some degree they complete you and you live happily ever after, versus the reality, as far as I'm concerned, and I believe this to be a universal truth. And the Greeks believed it, and I know you're a big fan of them. So that actually relationships a way to shine a light on the areas where you maybe have unhelpful patterns or unresolved traumas or just areas that you're kind of not free. And so, I mean, I know that's definitely been the case with in my relationship. Like when we haven't been through anything like you have, but we've been through our own usual stuff and definitely it's deepened and we've really grown through it so much. So we're even thinking of recording an episode on it, but, that to me is what relationships are about, at least in part, rather than the just the happy ever after. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Lois definitely has made me a better person. And I'd like, and I'd like to think that I've done the same thing, but not by just 
making each other happier all the time by exposing like exactly that exposing weaknesses calling each other out on stuff you know making you you want to become a better person because you realize that you're not you're imperfect and you always will be and actually without that mirror of of a strong partner often you don't realize that often you will just float through life with with those inadequacies and be naive to them. Yeah, I, I agree. And sorry, I can't help. One more question on, on you and Lois. And, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the pair of you, by the way. But you said that neither of you were people to talk about your feelings before. Is she much more open to reflecting on emotions and stuff now as well as you? How's that side of things developed? Um, I think she's she is definitely yeah definitely more open to it nowhere near as far as i've shifted but i think i was more closed off in the first place um i think it was very hard for her initially when we ended up having that first t- tough conversation sort of 2 years or a year and a- after the accident that you know she took to for her to admit she was struggling she had bottled it up for a long time and i think that was more protecting me and and she knows now i think that process we went through of sort of saying the hard thing and then the building we've done afterwards has proven the concept if you like so that now we don't let anything bubble don't let anything simmer it's pretty straight nip it in the bud um which probably beforehand we might have ignored things for a bit longer um so i think she's moved on in that in that respect but honestly we are we very rarely um argue of course we have our fallouts from time to time she's one of my best mates as well as as well as uh, as well as my wife on, on all levels, like she's got the same similar toilet humor to me. You know, some some of the some of the things you you know you you, you can everyone calls their partner one of their best mates, but something you can only really do with your best mates. You know, but actually she covers all bases. And she's better mates with some of my one of some of my rugby friends now. Um, I think that comes from a netball background. They're they're as bad if not worse as rugby player uh, the rugby <laughs> players when it comes to nights out singing you know all of the crudeness um <laughs> and yeah we we so we it doesn't often get to that anymore uh, i think partly is that just going through and understanding that healing process and realizing it's important to speak about things up front but the other part of it is the fact that you know we've got perspective to fall back on you know yeah. what have we come through before is there any point you know in arguing about this or shall we just say it how it is and not be insulted by it not get upset by it yeah. you know it's just a fact yeah not personalize it basically because that's yeah. all it is in yeah. relationships isn't it you're just pointing your finger at the other person when really it should be point like you said it's a mirror it's your own stuff right um before we we get back and i want to talk about that conversation that, that you and lois or rather lois had with you imminently but we should really just quickly recap we have spoken at length about you know your journey before and i'll link to that episode but just just to recap, there you were, 8th of April, getting a bit twitchy while breaking bread at lunch, headed for the swimming pool. What were you? 18 stone of rippling muscle. Went in for the went <laughs> in for quite. the dive and <laughs> yeah, God, look at that arm. 18 stone of something. <laughs> yeah. um, and that is the opposite of the arm it used to be. <laughs> People who can't see it's just this sort of claw, withered away claw hand that I now have on the left side. <laughs> um uh, yeah, so so you you jumped into the pool, uh, broke your neck, nearly died several times in the drive on the way to hospital. Very lucky in terms of your dad being there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I hate to skip over this, but purely for for time purposes. But just in terms of your book, Lucky, there was a bit that really stuck out for me where you were talking about 
Yeah, it was around the time of the toe wiggle. And you alluded to the fact that you were thinking, I think you describe it as the worst things about yourself. And obviously that kind of alludes to something in my mind. So how were you feeling at that point? And what was going through your mind? But around the toe wiggle. Well, when you said that you said around the toe wiggle in the book, you say, you know, you were crying and thinking it, it may have been before the toe wiggle. You were crying and thinking the worst things about yourself that you had ever thought. Yeah. So especially in that first week, there were times that the things are, you know, this it's all in the book that I probably hadn't spoken about in the blogs because I knew that people were reading them. You know, I knew every day my mum or Lois was reading it and I had some pretty dark thoughts at certain times and it wasn't until I got to speak to to peers, I suppose, who'd got in contact, who'd been through it earlier on that I realised actually that's very normal. Um, I thought, you know, it, it'd be better, not just me, but everyone would be better off if I wasn't here. You know, and um, you know, fortunately at that stage of a spinal cord injury, or for me anyway, you can't move, you, you wouldn't be able to move enough to kill yourself even if you wanted to. But I had those thoughts. They were fleeting and I managed to move them on. And it was always just a battle to to sort of stay with it until daybreak, until the morning, really, when your friends and family come back in. And then you, that's when you start to realise how important your support network is and your relationships are because it completely changes your mood. And then at night when they go again and you can't really breathe for yourself, you can't move enough to even press the panic button, your brain obviously goes into negative spirals. I think we're quite susceptible to think of negative things over positive things you know it's evolutionary biology to defend ourselves and you know there's no point facing on the you know there's no point concentrating on the positives because they're not the things that are going to kill you but that can put you in in bad places so I did have some very bad thoughts early on ones that I wasn't probably expressing and then when I did manage to start expressing them to people through the blog through the peers that got in touch with me to people that I wasn't worried about upsetting it made a massive difference offloading it in that respect the other thing that I was struggling with really was um, the fact that I was changing massively in front of my eyes, like physically. My identity was in being a rugby player, you know, and I'd looked a certain way my whole life and, and my, you know, I was a physical being or whatever. And, and I lost three stone of muscle in the first three weeks. And um, I think looking back on it and understanding things a little bit better now than I do, probably than when we even spoke two years ago, you know, a lot of that was ego. You know, a lot of it was like wanting to look like the, the way I did before, worried about what Lois would think of me and worried about what other people would think of me. Um, and actually, after I left hospital, I ended up just going to the gym all the time. I look at my wedding photos and I'd actually got myself back in you know, reasonably good shape. Obviously, one leg was withered away and one arm was, but I was spending a sort of disproportionate amount of time on things that really didn't matter towards my recovery just because I wanted to look a certain way again. So I think when... I know we're going to get onto it but when we eventually had that first conversation and um, it was really hard to hear because I was still carrying with me a lot. I was still very ego driven at that point. And, and what I looked like um, was a big part of that. Mm. Those moments, particularly at night in hospital, when you're thinking everyone would be better off without me. And for example, another tough time when, the doctor told you you're unlikely to walk again. Obviously, for someone in my position and anyone listening, or most people listening, I'm sure, imagining what it's like to go through that, it's harrowing just to hear. How would you describe what the experience of that is like? Um, 
it's it's like getting winded. I think when I when I got to, when we when I was told by the doctor that I'd never walk again, I think we'd all been, you know, we'd all been thinking it. But when you hear it and it's verbalized, it's sometimes it's like it's not even real. It's not happening at the time. It was like it's not happening to me. This isn't real. And actually, that was one of the hardest things when I was in hospital was falling asleep and dreaming, you know, dreaming about being able-bodied again. And then you wake up. And you're like, oh my god, this it takes a t- it takes a bit of time, a few seconds to realize that this is actually real. And you keep slipping into those day, even daydreams sometimes that oh, I'm going to wake up from this soon because this this can't be happening to me. This only happens to other people, or people that you you only hear about this happening to people. It can't actually be happening to me. Um, but in the case of the doctor telling me I wasn't going to be able to walk again, that was one of the most important things that could have happened to me because sometimes you need to have that dose of reality to realize hang on a minute, okay, that's the benchmark. There's the line in the sand. That's what's going to happen if I don't do anything. So now you've got a decision to to stop worrying about it, to stop beating yourself up about it and do something about it. It's up to you now to do something about it. Whether anything would come from it, I didn't know at the time, but all I knew was that if I didn't, that's how it was going to end up. And up until that point, I'd just been lying there, you know, sometimes daydreaming, fooling myself that it's okay, I'll still be okay. I'll be okay. Something will come along and it'll sort it out. This doesn't happen to me. And then when someone tells you this is happening to you and this is how it's going to be, that's that, that that turned out to be the kick up the ass I needed to go, right, well, you've got a decision to, you've got a decision to make here, mate. Either, either you roll over and accept that or you do everything you can to try and get better. And, and then it's what will be will be. You know, it may not happen, but if you don't try and you look back and you know you've cut corners, you won't be able to forgive yourself. Mm. And those middle of the night moments where the dark thoughts are swirling, and I think a lot of us can relate to just what it's like when you've got worries in the middle of the night, they're amplified anyway. Would you describe that experience as hellish? And the reason I ask that is because of that other quote of Winston Churchill's, I think, which is, if you're in hell, keep going. But was it hellish? Yeah. I think there's, it's it's hard. I'm like, it's there's a lot of disbelief involved. Like it's, it's such frantic fear, fa- like phases of, of of fear and anxiety that it doesn't seem real sometimes, and it does go in waves. It was never a constant emotion. It was you'd distract yourself for a bit, and then it would just go whack and just hit you again, and you never knew when it was coming. It would always blindside you. And it was very rarely during the day because you can keep yourself distracted with your friends and your family. But it's when you're by yourself, you know, with your own thoughts, your mind will do some pretty nasty, will attempt to do some pretty nasty things to you. And yeah, I would decide that I would describe some of it as hellish. Um, in that same breath, I know that I'm very fortunate to have, have not suffered or don't suffer from any serious mental health conditions i work with a lot of people that do through my charity and through restart and i know people that do but i do have much more sympathy for it now having those fleeting bounce of it whilst i was in intensive care and understanding how dangerous those thoughts can be and how scary those thoughts can be when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What have you learned then about managing or dealing with or relating to very destructive thoughts, whether they be of as a result of something like you went through or even the thoughts that uh, come up when someone is depressed or really anxious and, and your mind is influenced by that? I think I've since learned that it's completely natural and it's completely normal to feel those, to feel that way. And we're not control. We're not in control in any way of our thoughts. A lot of the time, we're definitely not in control of our emotions. And I didn't, you don't realize that at the time and you start to beat yourself up and feel guilty because you're feeling a certain way. But over time, when you speak to other people who have been through it before, you understand it's more normal. You probably do some more research into it. And I know since then, you know, I've done a lot more and you certainly have, you know, and, and, you know, whether it be philosophy or spirituality and, you know, stoicism helped me on that, on that path initially, you know, understanding that we're not in control of what happens to us, but, you know, there's a gap there where we can decide whether those emotions are going to be useful or not. And then if they're not, try and move them on. But it was it was a process that I went through, especially in the early days when I didn't understand it. All I got to learn was I understood that it wasn't good for me to sit there worrying and it wasn't beneficial for my recovery. And that was enough at the time to try and park those those thoughts and emotions. I only stopped feeling guilty about them, though, from having them in the first place when I understood that they were completely normal. And I, I only got to that stage when I started being honest about them. Up until that point, you know, I was ex-rugby player. You kind of been taught to never show any weakness, you know, when you're growing up. It's, it's our demographic, you know, younger males. It's why you have, you know, it's why the suicide levels are so high, very bad at showing any vulnerability. And I was certainly in that boat. But as it moved, when it, as it started to normalize speaking to other people's experiences, and then when I started to be honest about it, I felt those emotions dissipate. But yeah, the point where I've got to now and the point I'm still working on and the point we should all be working on is understanding that those emotions and actually to a certain extent, I know you're further down the rabbit hole than me in non-duality, but you're even your own thoughts, you're not in control of. So don't mm. beat yourself up about them. Yeah, totally. Uh, that's why I think I really like, and I talk about it a lot, but uh, acceptance and commitment therapy is just understanding that uncomfortable thoughts and feelings are totally normal. If you didn't have them, you'd be weird. It's quarter of a million years of evolution everyone has them and that's why I, I, we play a game with our little with delilah six every night happy sad excited worried honestly the impact on her has been unbelievable and and just getting 
So for any parents out there, just a little side track, getting her to understand that that we have our own worries and sadnesses every day. She's been like, you honestly, the change in her is just just huge. So yeah, I just think what you said there, it's totally normal to have all these feelings. You touched on stoicism, right? And I love how much you've got into this kind of stuff. And I think the bit that I got most excited, you shared a video on your Instagram feed, I think of you in bed, or maybe Lois shared it, you in bed and you're like, she's like, I don't know, trying to turn the light off or go to sleep or something. And you're there sort of going, hey, listen to this line from this book or whatever. And I'm like, (laughs) Like your interest in philosophy and stoicism. I mean, it's just, it's been ignited, hasn't it? It has massively because it helped me so much. In fact, and it all started off with um, The Obstacle is the Way. I know we spoke about it on the first podcast, Ryan yeah. Holiday. Um, and, you know, that's a book I'd recommend to anyone. Mm. Who's get, I do recommend yeah. or send to people who are going through something similar uh, early on and earlier on in the process. But then it develops. And, and I think that it's, it, they become such powerful to uh, such powerful tools or they have become such powerful tools for me that now don't just benefit me in my recovery or haven't just helped me through but they've stuck with me and if they've embedded as a result of having to deal with a life-changing situation they've embedded a lot of them you know there's still a lot of work to do in all these areas you can never perfect any of it or all of it um but they benefit me in all different aspects of my life now my relationships work you know and and I really feel that they're all lessons that anyone can benefit from. Um, and I couldn't believe I didn't know more about it before. You know, it really would have helped me through my rugby career, you know, a lot of it. Yeah. You know, it's um yeah. and it helps you every day, every minute of every day of your life, you know, especially especially the mindfulness side of things and the mindful gap and understanding evolutionary biology and human interactions and not feeling you know acceptance and not blaming people for the way they're acting Mm. every single day you've got hundreds and thousands of interactions like that are happening and if you can remove the stress from each of them you just leave a live a lot smoother happier life oh totally yeah well said now let's talk though about this conversation that you you had with lois because this isn't something we spoke about first time round which was very much about you your recovery, what you learned, you know, how you basically educated yourself on all these things, had this can-do attitude that meant that you just learned about mindfulness and stoicism kind of off your own back. But in the book, you talk about, flip it around, and Lois, who's been this beacon of light and just this bubbly, supportive, you know, hugely warm and, and loving and kind, just bent over backwards for you. And then one day she's just a little, you could just tell she's a little bit off or a little bit distant and you have this, this conversation. So yeah, can you just, just tell me about that, how that made you feel at the time and now how you look back on it as well? Yeah. So obviously Lois had done everything to all the focus was on me and my recovery. And she had been such a instrumental part in getting to me to where I was, not just in a practical sense, because she became my physio basically out of hours. You know, the NHS is an amazing beast and it saved my life, but re, you know, it's tight on resources. And I was only getting three or four hours of physio a week if it was just NHS provision. Whereas she was in my room every day, learning from the physios, giving me the extra input. And it was surely a massive reason why, why I've managed to progress the way I have. But more, more in an emotional sense 
I want to limit the effect that this had on her life and our life, not just me. And actually, it was more about her, especially as we have our we-, we had our wedding on the horizon, and she was everything. She was what I was doing all these things for. But we'd gone home. Things had, you know, I was still in a wheelchair, I was still needing care. Obviously, looked completely different and moved completely different. Diff- need different types of care, and and I was so focused on at that point um, helping other people in hospital, but my own rehab and driven in different ways, trying to stay positive that I just completely overlooked the way she was feeling. And I think she was in a position where she didn't want to, she was confused by the way she was feeling. It transpired that, you know, she didn't love me any less, but what had happened was I was a different person. Like I looked different, smelled different. And she often felt like she was almost cheating on me with this, with this other person. You know, I was in, now interested in like philosophy and things like that. She's like, this, that's not Ed. No, <laughs> yeah. I quite like him, but it's a bit, it's very different. It was a process that she had to go through. You know, these changes happen, not just to the individual, but anyone who cares for them. And the trauma happens to anyone who cares for them. I speak to people now who are going through similar situations in hospital and it's never them who's got, who's in the worst headspace. It's always a mum or a wife, you know, or a, a father um, who feels helpless, but and loves them, and they're suffering more psychological trauma than the actual patient, particularly as they don't feel like they can say anything, because they're like, well, it's not about me, it's about them. That'd be so selfish for me to say something. So Lois was bottling up this transition for ages. And eventually it got to the point where she went and saw a therapist without, you know, without letting me know. And or I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, you should go and see a therapist. I wasn't really thinking anything of it. And it got to the point where she came back and she said, look, Ed, this is what's going on. This is how I'm feeling. This is the transition I'm struggling with. And it whacked me again. It really hurt because it played on a lot of insecurities I was probably burying as well about that change, about not being attractive anymore. And I know this is a similar case for, you know, a lot of people who suffer similar injuries now, you know, with that network I've got and speaking to them that, you know, you're all of a sudden you're incontinent and you, 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 you've withered away or you're, you're in a wheelchair. People really hate, start to have body image issues and hate themselves. And that's how I took it when she first said it. And of course she didn't mean it. She, that's not what she meant at all. It was just her getting used to a transition. And then when she explained it and we went, right, okay, this is, we need to spend more time here and work on this. And we did. And actually the process of her even admitting it to me, um, was a massive was massive healing in its in itself, and then from then on, it kind of again set that foundation, and it's been only up from there. And and like we spoke about earlier, that was the realization that honesty is the best policy. You know, the way she was feeling was not her fault. Fault we just touched on that as well. You know, it's completely human nature to feel certain ways, and being able to be honest about the way you're feeling is only beneficial. You know, and and it really it really did help. Uh, our relationship from then on and since then we've been able to be completely honest with each other and she told you how hard she found it to be honest with you like that how did she feel going through that conversation do you know yeah it was really really it was harder for her than it was hard than it was for me you know she was shaking I remember and you know there was a lot of tears and she felt because the last thing she wanted to do was hurt me but she knew the only way to for us to move forward is to deal that honest blow first because otherwise it would continue to eat away and degrade and and it was incredibly brave of her and it was something that she had taken six months to get to that point of being able to say something real realistically 
Um, and I've got a huge amount of respect for her being able to do it because the last thing we want to do is upset the people we love. And and but she knew and with the help of her therapist, you know, she made her realize that this was the best way or this was actually the only answer at the time to then start taking positive steps forward. But it was incredibly tough for her and incredibly brave thing to do, to be honest. And and like you said, it's it's really set the or laid the ground for your relationship since in terms of being honest, even if in the short term it hurts, as long as you're sort of growing and moving forward and being true to yourself, then that's more important than the discomfort you feel in having that uncomfortable conversations. Because I know from, from family stuff, sweep things under the carpet, don't say things. It's such a common thing. And so when you start having those sort of honest conversations that you can you can rationalize them away so easily. I've done this many times previously in relationship, you know, oh, do you know what? I'm not going to say that, or I'm, I'm going to keep that a little bit hidden because of X, Y, Z, because it's, it's easier not to. But then when you start, you actually start doing it. First of all, it gets easier, but it's, it's crucial. Otherwise, just so much stuff goes under the carpet. Yeah, and we're so we're so um, we have such a tendency to think the worst to catastrophize as well. So often the situation won't be as bad as you think it might be. So I think probably you know obviously our sex life took a big hit because you know um, erectile dysfunction and all of those things are affected by a spinal cord injury. So that had changed a lot, and I'm probably there thinking sometimes it's because she you know thinks I'm disgusting when actually it was nothing to do with that and her being honest, you know, and me starting to understand that she was just struggling with the the transition and the change, me feeling like a, smelling like a different person, not one that she loved any less, but just different. That actually ended up relieving all of those sort of insecurities that I had and probably had been bubbling away in the background, but I didn't want to hear that harsh reality. So I didn't say anything about it. Mm. Which just speaks volumes about how we do fill in the blanks and perceive things in a certain way. And it's so much better to get things cleared up. And so you said earlier about not blaming people for things and not holding grudges. And I think, you know, if you, the more you're able to see everyone has patterns, everyone has blind spots, everyone has all these things. And it's all only really ever a projection of their own stuff. You can stop taking things so personal, stop holding grudges, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason I say that is because I saw someone commented on that part of your book and was like really laid into your wife and was like, oh, so selfish. You're a nasty person. And we obviously don't need to go into it or anything like that, because as you know, like, sure, you have total empathy for the person who said it because it was just it would have been clearly a projection. But I mean, I'm assuming that you spoke about that comment with her. What was your take on that reaction? Did that knock you at all? Did she find it hard to hear? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it didn't. It, it knocked me. I, you know, I went into defensive mode, obviously, because that's my wife and it was misguided. That's all it was. Yeah. It was a misunderstanding and it was a surface level. You know, Lois, everyone will read between the lines, you know, and Lois talking about how she was struggling with me being the way I was. And obviously we can talk about it on here as so people have just listened, understand, understand it was nothing to do with the fact I had a spinal cord injury. She was just going through her own transition and she was trying to heal the position rather than. Um, but, you know, the, the person who. um and, and you know it is a, it's a re, it's a reflection on something they've gone through, so you have to enter it with sympathy. But at the same time, you know, I probably acted a little bit on emotion, and I didn't go full ball. But I did explain that you know it's selfish, even if you have an accident, 
and you're in that position of perceived weakness to think that it's just happening to you and other people aren't going through it. And I think it's really important for people to realise that. And I knew that was more for other people to read than that person, you know, that individual, because I think a big mistake that a lot of people make when they're going through trauma themselves is to push away the people around them, to not appreciate how important their support networks are, not just to them anyway, but for their own recovery. And also they completely underestimate what those other people are going through yeah this is something that i've realized now being very involved in different families that are going through something similar and now through the charity that we run actually often the best way to help the patient or the person who's gone through the trauma is to support their support network and they're often the ones that get overlooked and the amount of marriages you see breaking down the amount of families you see splitting up and often you look at the you look at the stats and what's happened, you look into it and you completely understand why it's happened. And often it'll be the person going through the trauma that's pushed people away and then wanting to help them struggling with their own transition and it'll get to breaking point. And Lois saying this to me was the savior of our relationship, was saved our relationship. That's what she was doing. She was saving our relationship. And um, actually by not saying something, which is what this person was implying, you know, they were saying, that, you know, Ed's going through all of that stuff and you're saying that you're struggling to, to to find a way to be with him or not be with him but finding to love the new ed um because she's going through that transition was very selfish of hers of her but it was it was the most unselfish thing she could have done you know the selfish thing would have kept been kept quiet and suffered in silence and we wouldn't be in the strong position we are today we might have even ended up in a in a place which a lot of unfortunately that scenarios like this do where people end up separating and going in different directions yeah yeah from what I remember, that comment even was, oh, not just that she chose to say that to you, but just that she was thinking that. And like we've said already, completely normal to have these yeah. thoughts, to have these feelings. And then it's another couple of things as well about the irony is in looking after herself, she helped you. That's the thing. It does work that way. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. I think people... They pour everything into whether it's their partner or family member who's going through the trauma and then they let themselves go in a dark place or a bad place or let that eat up with them. Or if they bottle it up for too long, at the end of the day, they're going to end up in a weaker place, which is, you know, it's going to end up the knock on effect of doing more damage further down the line. And often the best way to help is to look after yourself and and um, don't feel guilty for feeling the way you're feeling. You know, it's just it's normal to be like that and be honest about it. And and you and by being honest, that's the first step to 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 sort of healing healing the situation and the quickest way to help the individual as well. And in terms of self sacrificing, should we say, or or let's say people pleasing, which a lot of people talk about, and I put a post out recently about this, is that actually is an element of being controlling when you're doing that because if you're not being honest, or if you're going above and beyond to help someone, even though you it doesn't feel like the right thing to do, you're doing it to ultimately to control the way they feel. And so there's an element of control in there as well about people pleasing and self-sacrificing. So weirdly, self-sacrificing is a little bit selfish. Yeah, yeah, I, I know I've ruminated on that before as well. And it's kind of the same as when we give to charity, you know, w- would I be doing all the things I'm doing if it made me feel bad, you know, with the charity giving to others? Unlikely, you know, I'm not Mother Teresa, you know, it's, but it's fine to have a win-win. 
Mm. So that's absolutely fine. You know, it's fine to come away and feel good about what you're doing and and to take things away from it. But a lot of the time, a lot of the t- almost everything we do because we are so driven by evolutionary biology is to serve ourselves, whether we like it or not. It's just whether those things that are serving yourself are having a negative or positive impact on other people. And if you can set up your life where the reward and purpose you take comes from also adding to pe- other people's lives, then that's the best place to be. But don't don't be naive enough to think that you're an angel and you're doing everything because it's because you're just you know, you know you're just an amazing person. It's just chance that that is what serves your emotions, you know, and and. It, this you know this is a probably a whole nother conversation about completely relinquishing yourself to sort of feelings and thoughts and and realizing you're completely not in control and it's a scary thought to go down but don't feel bad about feeling good about doing something for other people you know and uh it, it might be self-serving but that's not necessarily a negative thing yeah feeling guilty about feeling happy that's a particular kind of madness um <laughs> yeah it is that balance between looking after number one and helping others yeah definitely um but i think that it's possible to do both Mm -hmm. but there's also other things that it's about structuring your life in a way that you've got to look after yourself because you're not going to be able to help others if you're not looking after yourself you know if i'm only doing charity work we have probably already been kicked out of our house because we do it all voluntarily so i need to do talks and i need to do the tv (laughs) stuff as well which i enjoy you know, it's it's great. I love it. And that's for me. But it means I, I can then go and do stuff for others in, in other areas. It's not just about being completely self-sacrificing. And actually, one of the most selfless things you can do is look after yourself, like you've just said, because that's just going to serve others. Yeah, that's why I think, you know, having that sort of victim mentality, woe is me or or putting everyone else first. It's weird and it's counterintuitive, but it's actually selfish. And I don't mean yeah, that judgmentally. 100%. I don't mean that no, judgmentally, no, no. but it is. Definitely. And and I'll, I'll tell people, you know, if they're really struggling, you know, they're feeling down, don't try and make themselves feel better. Go and make someone else feel better because the quickest life hack to being in a good place yourself. Even if you're going to make someone else feel better is only, only the only purpose is to make yourself feel better, which is a selfish act. But you're coming out with a win-win. They feel better. You feel better. There's nothing wrong with that. Bingo. Right. Last couple of bits, Ed. The journey you've been on is a really interesting one. So obviously... The sporting career is a short one. In so far, particularly in rugby, you know, you're done by, in your case, well, late 20s, but that was obviously a bit of an outlier. But, you know, let's say <clears throat> certainly early to mid, mid 30s, it's gone, right? And what I find interesting is, is that to be, to be an athlete, like you have to be, it's an egoic pursuit. It's, it's about me. You've got to be in the gym. You know, you're fighting for your place. It's dog eat dog. Your best mate, if he's if he was also number eight, you would have kneecapped him to make sure that you could get in the team. I mean, I don't know if you would have done, but theoretically. So it's very egoic. It's very like me, 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 me. And I think what's clear on your journey is that you've gone from that understandable me, which is also very normal, I think, in youth generally, to then being about we. So whether that be in terms of, bit understanding more about what's going on with with Lois, not that you weren't before, but even more so, through to the work you do with your charity, through to the mentoring you do, even through to writing this book kind of thing. And it's gone from me to to we. Still with that, you know, some of the me stuff in there as well, you know, 
uh, as we said, nothing wrong with that. What, what do you think about this? Because I think a lot of sports people, and, and particularly some pundits, struggle with this because I think it's it's kind of a natural life transition to go. When you're like 25, you want the sports car, you want the X, Y, Z. And then as you get a bit older, you realise that that stuff is not where happiness is. And it becomes more about we and about us. So it is. it does to me strike me as the natural course, the natural evolution that someone goes along in life. But some sports people in particular, it seems, get stuck at that ego stage of like, I'm the great sports person. And then it becomes, I used to be the great sports person. And that identity never goes. What's your take on what I've just rambled out there? Yeah, I I agree. It is is often a very egotistical pursuit. Um, And it has to be in a lot of sports to to get to the top. And you're right, it's a life journey. I I did a podcast... um, uh, with Erno Kane and and he is the head psychotherapist for for the NHS but he started off in palliative care and on people's death I said that must have been so hard you know people on the deathbed he's like no it's the most enlightening thing he's ever done and I said what was your biggest realizations and he said no one ever talked about what they had you know what titles they got to you know all they talked about was this one time on the beach and they sat around the fire with their grandkids you know, and some of these people had done so much in their lives on paper, but none of them gave a shit about it when they were on their deathbed. And I think that's the process you eventually get to. And I think maybe I had a bit of a fast track and it's still a process I'm on. But I think when you come to have to come to terms with the fact, you have to face the fact that your life might be over as you know it, you know, you're not going to be, you might not be independent any get anymore you know, realizing that you were resuscitated three times, that life might be over. It makes you think about what's important. And to me, I realized the most important thing to me were my relationships. And as that time's gone on, you know, every day I looked around the room and my family and friends were there. And a lot of people didn't have that. And as that time's gone on, I realized that I was only as strong as the people around me. And, you know, good business leaders know that, you know, and, and, people get to that stage eventually, you know, people put more more and more attention in their families, you know, and their friends. And I think I've realized that quite early. And I spend more time on my relationships, being more open minded to everyone around me, looking for inspiration in everyone I meet, going into every interaction, thinking something positive is going to come out of it rather than going, what are they up to? And that has just accelerated my life in so many different directions. And you're right, it, it it's a bit of a it was a bit of a shocky jolt journey and way to way to realize it. And I think with sports people and, it's, you know, with a lot of people, it is a journey, but people seem to get there eventually. You see grandparents, all they want to do is to spend time with their grandkids. You know, mm. it, it's, it's because throughout life, as experience comes, you start to realize more things, whether that's through, you know, like I just said, experiences or learning, seeing it happen before, researching, whatever it might be. Um that's the process you go on. I think, and sport is one of those where it's in a bubble. I do think it's some. There are people that are potentially worse than others, and I don't. I say worse. It's not worse. Some of the greatest sports people we've ever experienced have been complete egotistical bastards, but they've given millions of people entertainment. You know, yeah. so where does the balance lie there? Yeah. You know, so it's it's a difficult one. But um, I know exactly when you say some people can't. You know, the back in my day chat is one that I particularly (laughs) hate. But I think what you, that's fascinating. So what what was the uh, the chap you spoke to? I'm going to go out and search out that episode. 
This is on Owen O'Kane. Owen O'Kane. Yeah. So he's, that's he's really... written two books. Go on. Yeah, Ten Times Happier and Ten to Zen. Uh, he's a brilliant guy. Um, and and my I did an episode I recorded an episode on my podcast. It's good to walk with him, which cool. is worth a listen. He's uh, great. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll definitely check that out. I mean, just to summarize, so he's basically saying that that the egoic stuff. So the aggrandizing of me. And by the way, the diminishing of me is is just as the other side of the coin to the aggrandizing of me. You know, the woe is me is the same as the wonderful is me, right? And the the identities we have, the roles we play, whether it be, you know, doctor, rugby player, whatever, blah, 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 the achievements. When faced with the ultimate question, it's like air. It's see-through. It's, yeah. it's, it's nothing. Yeah. And it seems to be when, if it hasn't, they haven't gone to that point in the process, is when they're facing death or they're facing it all you get that clarity and i i can i can agree with that i can yeah testament to that right okay last thing ed i just want to know how has it been for you writing this book i thoroughly enjoyed reading it you know i was so chuffed when you sent me a copy you're very sort of open and vulnerable in it and like even that the stuff around the chat that you and lois had you know how has the whole experience of writing this book during lockdown has that changed you in itself yeah i'd say it has i mean it's made me realize i need a break if i'm going to write another one because it's <laughs> it's um it's a daunting process to say the process to say the least especially someone who probably only got into writing uh four years ago you know when i started my blog after after the accident and actually it was something that i was reluctant to do for a while because i was approached a couple of times about sort of turning my journey into a story because of the blogs I was keeping. So it's an actual day by day account, you know, I wrote it each evening. So instead of me thinking back in hindsight, it's actually what I was thinking that day. Um, but I was like, No, I can't do that. And no one's going to want to read that. But eventually, you know, I got to the point with the charity and also with helping other people that a very clever literary agent, Bev James persuaded, said to me that, that this book could help even more people. And also, you know, you could it could help the charity. And I couldn't say no to that. So got stuck into it. Luckily, I had my hand held throughout the process and already had 200,000 words to, to lean on. But it was brutal. There was a lot of work involved. Um, and I am, I probably could never have believed I would get to the stage I did. And I'm, I'm very proud of, of what's come out the other end of it. Um, it's pretty raw, as, as you know, having read it. And I think that's important because a lot of my blogs, I was missing out on those raw elements because I knew my parents were reading it and my wife was reading it. And it's a lot of stuff in there that people need to talk about that they don't naturally want to lean towards talking about, but the stuff that really heals, like the stuff we talked about with Lois, whether that be bladder, bowel, sexual function stuff. But but aside from the practicalities of having a spinal cord injury, um, I think there's a lot of lessons in there that oh. I learned throughout the process naturally and have now had got to a point in my life where I've been able to add a bit more colour from a research side whether it be philosophy or psychology um of things that can benefit anyone in their lives it's not just for people who are going through traumatic experiences it's for anyone um who because a lot of those lessons a lot of the things that have happened like i mentioned earlier are just helping me now in whatever i do and mm. i wanted to share those with other people um look if it, if it helps just one person in hospital and i've already been sent pictures of people on it's spinal cord injury wards holding them up, which is quite daunting in itself, like pressure's on. I hope it doesn't just frighten them, but I think there's plenty of practical advice in there. Then it would be worth writing. But also the feedback I've been getting has been pretty mind-blowing. 
I'm sat here, I cannot believe that I'm technically an author. But I mean, 27-year-old Ed that, when he's playing rugby, would have laughed at them. So I think there's a message there, a lesson there as well, that we're probably all a bit more capable than we think we are. And just to follow your dreams. And if you follow your gut a little bit more, yeah. um, and you never know what will happen. But I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm sure you, you might tell me something completely different when we come off air. I had to say that. <laughs> Actually, it was shit, mate. <laughs> no, I loved reading it. I really, really enjoyed reading it. And I think for me, a, a kind of unexpected pleasure that I've had from starting up this podcast, which has been going for like, well, it's coming up to three years, which is mad, has been some of the friendships that I've got. And that's from listeners. I've like a load of listeners email me, like long emails, I hate writing emails, so I'll just ring them. And like loads of them I'm now like good mates with. And you and I are, are chummy. And and I have to say, like over the last couple of years since we met and recorded in Broadcasting House, you know, the odd times we've exchanged messages and uh, had the odd little chat about philosophy and all its various forms. It's been really amazing. And so I just wanted to let you know from my heart, like genuinely, I thought I loved the book. I think your journey's amazing. And it's, yeah, it's, um, well, how, how do you summarize it? I love you, man. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I love you too, mate. You've opened my eyes to a load of new stuff as well. And um, I bloody can't wait to read your book too. Oh, don't, Ed. Don't. God, another year of pain, mate. But yeah, anyway. First, we- mate, the first draft's done now. <laughs> That's the hard bit. But then you've got the next bit, which is when they come back and rip it to shreds oh, and tell God. you it's oh, rubbish. God. That's fun and, as and well. And all the other bits as well. Anyway, listen, no, Ed, yeah. Lucky's brilliant. I've doffed my cap to both you and Lois. And, mate, it's been a pleasure again. And just congratulations on, on writing the book. It's brilliant. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode with Ed Jackson. I hope you enjoyed it. Do get in touch and let me know your thoughts. You can email me via my website, simonmundy.com or get in touch on social media. Please do share the episode with anyone you think might enjoy it or benefit from hearing it. That would be hugely appreciated. And just a reminder about this week's newsletter, Monday on a Monday, in which I talk about the power of paying it forward, a powerful way to process feelings, particularly with children, and a take on our intrinsic self-worth. Sign up at simonmundy.com. But until next time, thanks and goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.